This is the Future of Work Limited Series Podcast, brought to you by Andrew R. Timming, Professor of Human Resource Management at RMIT University. This podcast series brings together world-leading experts and thinkers to discuss employment trends and the future of the labor market. You can follow me on Twitter at TimmingLab. That's T-I-M-M-I-N-G-L-A-B. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the discussion. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down and speaking with Richard Dennis. Richard Dennis is the chief economist and former executive director of the Australia Institute. He is a prominent Australian economist, author, and public policy commentator, and a former associate professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia. Dennis was described by Mark Kenny in the Sydney Morning Herald as, quote, a constant thorn in the side of politicians on both sides due to his habit of skewering dodgy economic justifications for policy, end quote. In October 2018, the Australian Financial Review listed Dennis and Ben Oquist as the Australia Institute of the Australian Institute as equal 10th place on their covert power list of the most powerful people in Australia. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Yeah, well, and uh, it's tough to be, you know, covertly powerful and on a list that tells people you are, but um, that is the paradox of the modern media, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate you being here. Uh, And um, I guess I... I think just for the benefit of our audience, it would be good if you could start off um, just giving a brief overview of the competing views of government regulation of the economy and of the workplace. And particularly, I wonder if you could give a brief overview of the sort of classic liberal laissez-faire position uh, versus um, the sort of Keynesian position, just for yeah. layman's terms. Uh- yeah, look, in, in theory, there's there's quite a diverse range of possible views. I mean, uh, in theory, we can have a very laissez-faire, you know, hands-off approach where we say, look, the market for labour is similar to the market for, uh, I don't know, pick a product, uh, coffee or apples. And if we, if we let people that want to sell things and people that want to buy things come together and haggle over the price, you know, so be it. And uh, that's, that's the laissez-faire or, or so-called free market approach. Um, and then, you know, as you sort of move across the, uh, the, the, the sort of spectrum of intervention, uh, you can go back to a place where we were in Australia in the 1970s and 80s where we had a bureaucratic infrastructure that literally set award wages for different awards and updated. You know, most people were on uh, most people were on awards, and 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 bureaucrats effectively looked at the evidence uh, at the microeconomic level. So, what was happening at an industry? They looked at the macroeconomic level. What's happening with inflation and unemployment? Uh, and some bureaucrats 
aristocrat set prices and uh and then of course you know you can wind up anywhere you want in between and that's in australia at the moment we we have bureaucrats setting the minimum wage for us uh but most people are negotiating uh either directly with their employer or uh through their union with an employer um and really above a set of minimum conditions uh you know we we, we kind of say the market sort of does the rest but uh while they're the kind of broad three philosophical options uh let the market rip uh let the government set the prices or a bit of both we're definitely in the bit of both camp but uh i, I don't actually think we have a very uh helpful or clear debate about the right balance because we end up having a kind of phony philosophical debate about are markets better at setting wages or aren't they? Uh, and then to take a topical example, you know, there's a shortage, we're told, there's a shortage of fruit pickers uh, in Australia at the moment. Well, a free market here doesn't know what a shortage is. Uh, a shortage just means the wage isn't high enough. So if you wanted more people to pick fruit, offer them a higher wage. Uh, but in Australia, the people who align themselves with the sort of free market end of the labour market uh, are determined that uh, wages shouldn't rise in fruit picking. So our, our political debate and the philosophical debate just don't match up with each other at all. Mm. I think it's a good point that you raise at the beginning of this um, podcast because it's not really an either-or proposition, isn't it? In other words, even libertarians and classical liberals see some role for government intervention or regulation. Um, and by the same token, um, Keynesians aren't communists. They don't believe in complete and total government regulation. So I guess the question comes down to, you know, what's the equilibrium in terms of providing the best outcome? Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've written uh, extensively about this, but the, uh, look, politics loves simple fights between good guys and bad guys, and the and that way everyone's forced to pick a team. Whereas when we look at the economy and we look at the 196 other countries in the world, we, we see that it's a lot more complicated than goodies and baddies. So uh, I deliberately chose um, coffee at the beginning. Um, the market for coffee in Australia is not unregulated at all. Uh, if I want to set up a coffee cart and go park myself near a bus stop or a train station, uh, I'll be hounded away. I'm not allowed to just enter the coffee market. I'm not allowed to sell coffee from a cart near a lot of consumers. Uh, every cafe owner within two kilometres of my cart will be straight on the phone to the police uh, and other regulators saying, what's Richard doing? He's not allowed to just sell coffee between 9 and 11 when it's busy. Uh, so we, we regulate every market in Australia. I'm choosing my words carefully here. Every market in Australia is regulated. But rather than have an interesting, important polite debate about better and worse ways to regulate or which markets we want to regulate a bit more or which ones we want to regulate a bit less, rather than have an honest conversation about that, we have a political debate which is kind of barracking for two imaginary teams. You're supposed to barrack for regulate everything or regulate nothing. And uh, the labour market has never been unregulated uh, ever. You know, I mean, even when we go back to Roman times with labour market 
based on slavery. There was plenty of regulation on who could own slaves and how you had to treat your slaves and what the rules for, for selling slaves were. So once you accept the premise, and no one wants to, but once you accept the premise that there's no such thing as a deregulated labour market, then we could have a conversation about better and worse regulation. But that, while important, just isn't as much fun and isn't easy and our, our political debate doesn't want to take us there. I know in your particular role, you can have a go at both sides of the debates. That is to say, you can have a go <laughs> at the, the conservatives or the, the classical liberals. You can have a go at the, the labor people or the, the Keynesians. But where would you say that you situate yourself personally on this spectrum? Yeah, look, I, I guess I'd say like nearly everyone, I think I sit in the sensible centre. The, the, <laughs> the uh, politics defines who, who, who gets to sit comfortably there. But, you know, I, I studied labour market economics as an undergrad. Uh, my, my PhD was in macroeconomics, but really mainly about the macroeconomics of unemployment um, you know, I've literally studied labour markets uh, for, you know, 25 years now and I just don't know of any evidence anywhere in the world that says that if we just kind of got out of the way and let the market rip, the labour market would be okay. Now, I think the clearest example of this is that, um, you know, when John Howard introduced work choices, I mean, his attempt to deregulate the labour market took a thousand pages of regulation. Mm. <laughs> like it's not top secret. Like anyone can go and look up what the Fair Work Act looks like and it's long and it's complicated. And I don't, again, hear anyone saying, so let's just not have any of that. So, uh, so yeah, look, I, I think I'm proudly sitting at the sensible evidence-based centre, citing hundreds of years of theoretical and empirical work uh, that says labour markets are really messy places uh, and the selling of labour is different to the selling of coffee and it's different to the selling uh, of, um, uh, of cars or computers because of the human dimension of it, uh, because of the fact that when we're selling our wages, it's both a product and our only source of income. So, uh, you know, Menzies wasn't opposed to labour market regulation. Howard wasn't opposed to labour market regulation. We just all differ on what it is. But, yeah, I guess I'd say I'm an old-fashioned institutionalist in this regard. There, there is market power. Um, we, uh, you know, the, 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 the so-called free market is small government coalition that's in power at the moment is convinced that Google and Facebook have so much market power that they're inventing a new bargaining framework so that poor little old News Corp uh, you know, isn't up against a big bad monopolist called Google and Facebook. Well, let's be clear, if the coalition thinks that News Corp can't look after itself in a bargaining sense, mm. how on earth, how on earth does anyone suggest that a cleaner can look after themselves when they're dealing with a shopping centre? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's good. Like I just don't, I don't think it's, I just don't think it's controversial. Like I don't think the economics is controversial, but the consequences are controversial. 
you know, because if we shift bargaining power in the way the government's just done with Google and Facebook and News Corp, if we do that in a way that helps a cleaner, um, you know, we're, we're going to shift the distribution of income in Australia. Of course that's controversial. Of course people who are currently making high, pro- high profits would rather hang on to that rather than pay high wages. Like economics, neoclassical economics is built on the assumption that everyone acts in their own self-interest. So let's not get surprised that a company that's enjoying paying low wages isn't desperate to start paying high wages and lower its profit. The fundamental premise of neoclassical economics is the company would be mad to do that. The issue is how, comma, if at all, do we as a democracy want to step in to help the cleaner in the way we just helped little old News Corp? Mm-hmm. I just had a, a conversation in my, my previous episode of this podcast with uh, Chris Berg, who describes himself as a libertarian economist. Uh, and he had a real go at um, sort of neo-Keynesian uh, approach to regulating work and the economy, uh, particularly, you know, centering around the fact that from his perspective, um, the absolute most efficient way to allocate resources is to um, ensure that the market is doing the allocating rather than the government directing that allocation of resources. So he had a real go at the Keynesian um, argument. I wonder if you could just have a real go at the libertarian argument. Where are they wrong? Where, you know, what are their flawed uh, assumptions? Well, I'll I'll start at the beginning. There are no libertarians uh, that I'm aware of in Australia. Uh, You know, we are subsidizing coal mines we're subsidizing uh we want to have a gas-led recovery Uh, i see these so-called libertarians uh i I never see them fighting against governments offering public money uh to to big companies with market power why do libertarians in australia always aim (laughs) their alleged libertarianism uh, at the most vulnerable people, the people with the least market power. Uh, similarly, um, you know, if, if, if Chris, you know, and maybe he believes what he said, but if Chris believes that, then I look forward to him ripping into the farmers next time they say there's a shortage of fruit pickers. I can't wait to hear the Institute of Public Affairs and the Centre for Independent Studies and the Sydney Institute and indeed the Australian newspaper. I can't wait for the day that they say, well, farmers, if there's a shortage of labour, pay a higher price. That's how it works in a so-called free market. I'm just desperate to hear (laughs) once these so-called libertarians actually fire up when when the people that are breaching these alleged uh, free market principles uh, are the conservative governments uh, and and corporations? So so yeah. First first principles. The problem with you know Chris's argument is how strategically silent they are, how careful they are to aim their libertarianism at some groups and then strategically sit silently uh, when other groups are are, are contradicting these so called principles. Um, and then, of course, there's the actual economics. Um, you know, we, we have overwhelming empirical data from around the world, including from such well-known socialist institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and the OECD, 
that clearly shows that reducing income inequality, for example, is good for economic growth. It's good for economic growth. Uh, similarly, we know that high labour force participation rates are good for economic growth. And you don't get high levels of labour force participation, particularly amongst uh, women with kids, by offering them really, really low wages, especially when in a country like Australia, we have really expensive privatised childcare. So, yeah, in theory, um, you know, the idea that we just leave it to the market is, is contradicted by our approach to Google and Facebook. It's contradicted by our approach to farmers not wanting to pay higher wages. It's contradicted by subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. We're not libertarian in Australia. The coalition certainly aren't. The National Party don't even pretend to be. And groups like the IPA just just cherry pick when they feel like being libertarian. But Again, you know, the, the empirical evidence suggests that actually high wages uh, are associated with higher rates of productivity growth, uh, lower rates of income inequality and higher rates of labour force participation, which at a macroeconomic level are very good for economic growth, not, not bad for it. Mm. So let's just say hypothetically, if it was the case that suddenly we had a libertarian government in Australia or in America or anywhere for that matter, you know, what would happen to wages? What would happen to the economy? Would you see, uh, you know, an increasing concentration of wealth in the hands of the few above and beyond what we have already? Because you could argue that the fact that there's, you know, a lot of regulation now, and yet you still see increasing concentration of wealth suggests that maybe intervention isn't doing its job. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or, or maybe we're doing less intervening than we used to. I mean, l- let's be clear, in Australia, the, the coalition won office in 2013. It's seven years that they've been in power. Uh, Erica Betts was the first workplace relations minister in the Abbott government. And, you know, his early concern was he was terrified about a wages explosion. I'm quoting there, wages mm. explosion. Um, well, mission accomplished. Well done, because boy, did we solve the wages explosion <laughs> with sev- with seven years of the flattest wage growth in history. Mm. All right, so there has been no wage growth in Australia. We've got record low wage growth, and again, those pinko lefty communists, this time at the Reserve Bank of Australia, uh, are adamant that low wage growth was a major contributor to. GDP growth being so low. So, you know, let's, you know, unfortunately for, for libertarians in Australia, they're, they're a bit like the dog that caught the car. For 20 years, they've said we have to change our, our system of labour market regulation to constrain wages growth. For 20 years, we've told ourselves stories about if only we could deregulate the labour market and keep wages low, then we could get full employment and rapid economic growth. Mm. But mission accomplished, kids. You did it. You got there. 20 years of deregulation of the labour market, 20 years of stripping away the bureaucratic structures that used to help low-paid workers get pay rises. Well done. You did it. We've now got the lowest wage growth we've ever had and the economy's in the doldrums as a result of achieving that goal, <laughs> right? <laughs> so th- this didn't just happen overnight. 
we've had a 20-year campaign to lower wages growth. Mission accomplished. Mm-hmm. All right? But what, where are the benefits that are going to flow from this? Well, you know, don't ask me. Go ask the people telling the fairy tale story because mm-hmm. they got their fairy tale. Right? We've got the lowest wage growth in history. We've got the lowest wage to GDP share in history. And before, the, before coronavirus hit, we had low economic growth, uh, a budget that because the low economic growth, they couldn't get the budget back into surplus the way they're obsessed with. Right? They've caused all of these problems with their obsession about deregulating the labour market and lowering wage growth. So I don't know what their next move is, but it sounds like they just want more of the same. Well, explain to me why what they've got already isn't working. So if deregulation uh, leads to you know, market turmoil or market inefficiency, or how you want to describe it, um, then it follows logically that regulation is a good thing. But I think we can all agree that regulation for the sake of regulation isn't a good thing. What we need to do is to determine what's the difference between smart regulation and dumb regulation. So I wonder if you could comment a bit on that. How, you know, what kind of regulation should we be looking at? Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. And, and to be clear, I mean, dumb regulation is dumb and good regulation is good. And if, if economists and non-economists that participated in the econ- economic debate would be honest about this, then, yeah, then we could actually have spent the last 20 years saying, okay, why, why do the Nordic countries have so much higher GDP per capita? What is it that these high-wage Northern European countries are doing that we might want to learn from? And, and, and what is it that in America... Uh, with their radically different labour market to the Nordic countries. What is it in America we'd like to emulate? What are, the, what are the bits that are working well in Scandinavia and what are the bits that are working well in the US and what are the bits that are working well in Japan? And can we all admit that these are all rich countries, right? <laughs> they do exist and it's up to us, comma, if we want to, to, to learn from any or all of them. Uh, so yeah, I think what we have to do in Australia is just stop telling sort of, you know, scary stories that if we don't deregulate the labor market some more, we'll be uncompetitive with Asia. And once we're uncompetitive with Asia, everyone will lose their job. So unless you support my particular proposal to deregulate the labor market, you must want us to lose a competition with Asia and all become unemployed. Like, as long as the story sounds anything like that, it's not helping us as a country at all. Because, you know, here's a tip. Norway exists. Sweden exists. They manufacture things with, despite having very high wages. And guess what? Norway and Sweden and Denmark do. They export things to Asia. <laughs> right? So this, this idea that unless we lower our wages... And unless we have some bare bones industrial relations protections for low paid workers, unless we kind of look like Bangladesh, we'll never be able to compete with them, is demonstrably wrong because Scandinavia does exist. But at what point does government regulation of work and the economy stop looking like sort of social democratic capitalism and start looking like socialism like where's the yeah. cutoff 
you, you mean is it Norway or Sweden or Finland? Um, <laughs> look, I don't know. This, see, this is the thing. We've got category errors here because, you know, in Australia, uh, the public sector accounts for, let's say, 25 30% of GDP. Uh, in Sweden, it's probably more like 45% of GDP. Uh, and then so we kind of talk about sort of socialism versus capitalism. But again, every so-called capitalist society in Australia, in, in the world, has got a pretty big state. Right? So somewhere between a fifth and a half of total production is produced by the public sector in pretty much every country we want to compare ourselves with. So somewhere between 20% and 50%. Where's the cutoff? Uh, I, I don't know. I think in Australia we're so far south of the cutoff that it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And, and also, I mean, you know, the, there's no right answer to this. And let's be clear, you know, economics textbooks, the first thing we teach kids in first year uni is that economics is about is, not should. Like we pretend, like we, we indoctrinate our students so well, we say, look, the reason economics is better than all the other social sciences, and, yeah, we do teach them that, um, we say it's better than all the other social sciences because it's a science of, because it's about how the world is, not how the world should be. But then, of course, any time someone puts their hand up in a democracy and says, I think we should do this or we should do that, economists fire up and shoot them down, saying, but, but if you did that, it would ruin the economy. So we teach the kids that economics doesn't do should and that, you know, democracy should answer questions like what's the distribution of income look like or what's a fair minimum wage. But we literally teach our kids in first year that that's a democratic question, not an economic one. But as soon as someone's got the audacity to ask it, the economists shoot them down saying, well, that might be a democratic question, but to, to, to even ask it suggests you don't care about the economy. So... I know I haven't quite answered your question, but really what I'd say is um, it's entirely up to us to decide whether, for example, we want to give people free childcare the way they do in the Nordic countries uh, and the way we did at the beginning of the COVID recession. Uh, if we want to give people free childcare, uh, then we can probably be a bit more relaxed about uh, some some regulations in the labour market. Similarly, like look at the US. Like uh, most people don't realise this, but it was the it was the conservatives in the UK that came up with the national health system, mm -hmm. and the reason the reason that the conservatives came up with the world's first publicly funded health system was to prevent English employers from having to pick up the tab for health insurance for their staff. Right? Mm. So, you know, is it you can't have questions about labour market deregulation or labour market regulation. You can't actually meaningfully separate them from questions about what kind of democracy, what kind of social democracy, what kind of role of the state you want. Because in America they've got this bizarre situation or looking in from Australia, this bizarre situation where very expensive, inefficient private health insurance is kind of employers are saddled with that. And, and here we sit in Australia pretending that America's got some deregulated labour market that we should emulate. 
I mean, having a publicly funded Medicare and no obligation for employers or no expectation for employers to provide health insurance seems like a much better deal for, for both employers and employees. So, again, I think our simple left-right intervention free market categories just get in the way of us actually looking at dumb things that happen here, dumb things that happen elsewhere, good things that happen elsewhere, and dumb things that happen here. Like, if we just kind of looked at it from that point of view, I think we'd have a radically different debate. So where are we heading in the short term, the medium term, in the long term? If you had to make a guess, if you were a betting man, how do you see the economy evolving? Do you see um, you know, greater regulation uh, in, in the crystal ball or do you see greater deregulation? Uh, I, I see less and less protections for vulnerable people. Um, but but I, I'm choosing my words carefully here. It often takes a lot of regulation to to to, to make life harder for poor people. Uh, so I don't I don't really accept the language of deregulation because the minute you pass a bill through Parliament, you're regulating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think we should obsess about how many pages a regulation is. So uh, I, I think we'll see more and more regulation introduced by the conservatives in the lead up to the next election and the new regulations that they'll introduce will be new regulations to limit the effectiveness of unions. Um, uh, There'll be new regulations to continue to protect the interests of some employer groups, but not all employer groups. And here's a prediction no one in power is going to say to the fruit industry, why don't you pay higher wages? Mm. Like None of them are going to say, you know, we deregulated the labour market precisely so that it wasn't a policy problem if you can't find staff. Like the whole point, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> isn't this what Chris was saying? Mm. Isn't the whole point of, of a so-called deregulation of the labour market to say that if someone's got a shortage then the price should move. But no one walks into a fish shop at Christmas time and says there's a shortage of prawns. Everyone just accepts that when there's a lot of demand for prawns, the price goes up. Mm. Well, guess what happens during picking season? There's a lot of demand for people who know how to pick fruit. Mm-hmm. Right? Just like prawns at Christmas. Mm. This, is not, this is not beyond the wit of all of the conservative voices in Australia. So guess what? When the harvest is due, there's a lot of farms all seeking labour at the same time. And what economics says should happen is the price should go up. But when powerful groups don't want to pay a high price, it's a policy problem. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so what do I think is going to happen? Um, oh, look, I think unemployment's going to stay pretty high in Australia for the next couple of years. The, the, the history is quite clear that recoveries from labour markets recover much more slowly than GDP. Mm. So e- even if GDP growth comes back to 3 or 3.5% sometime soon uh, and, and stays there, um, the labour market will lag for years. So there's going to be lots of unemployed people uh, lots of underemployed people, and that is there's going to be a great 
deal of supply of labour. So, of course, firms that want to pay the lowest wages they can are going to make as much noise as they can, saying, please lower whatever minimum standards are already in place. Uh, if you do, I might employ some of those unemployed people. Um, think that uh, the, the, the politics of that will be compelling. So go back to what I said before, the pinko lefties at the RBA say low wage growth caused, caused uh, a lot of our macroeconomic problems. Um, I think we're going to keep trying to cause some low wage growth. <laughs> and the, the, the consequence of that is obvious. You've been listening to Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute talk about the future of government regulation. And uh, Richard, I wonder if we could just draw this discussion to a close um, by um, looking at how some of the changes we've talked about are going to affect individual workers. So we've talked a lot about the future of work as a system. We've had a good sort of macro level discussion about things. What's the future of the worker or the future of the employee? How is all this going to affect individual employees? Well, wages are obviously very important. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, low wage growth in Australia has is, 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 is become persistent. So unless we do something to change that, that's going to continue to cause all sorts of cost of living problems for individuals <laughs> and also macroeconomic problems. But Let's take the recent debate around, um, uh, you know, the unfortunate catastrophic loss of life uh, associated with um, riders in the gig economy delivering food. Um, in Australia, when you go past a construction site, you'll, you'll never see scaffolding made of anything but steel. Um, you can drive around or fly around the world once upon a time um, and see plenty of countries where scaffolding is made out of bamboo or cobbled together with bits of wood. There's lots of ways to make scaffolding. And in Australia, red tape nanny statism, otherwise known as regulation, forces employers to use high quality steel scaffolding. That's regulation that does that, it's not market forces. Um, and as a result, scaffolding collapses do occur in Australia, sadly, but far less often than they do in countries that have got less red tape and anti-statism. Um, so we're looking now at how, comma, if at all, we're going to impose occupational health and safety obligations on the, on the companies that insist they're not really employers. So, you know, because of Australia's weird system of regulation, um, we've, you know, we've got all sorts of incentives that we've created uh, for employers to pretend they're not employers, that all of their staff are contractors, etc. Um, there's all sorts of problems associated with that. And the more and more people uh, that work in the so-called gig economy, uh, the more and more people are, are not covered by traditional occupational health and safety. Um, now, unfortunately, the results of that can be catastrophic, literally deadly. So uh, I think... I think the way we choose to regulate work in Australia is going to have implications for wages, obviously. It's going to have big implications for the distribution of income in Australia and not just between rich and poor, but between men and women and young and old. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's going to have huge implications for safety. Uh, but, yeah, to all those that say, let's just let the market rip, I just 
I just keep bringing people back to fruit picking. We, we only say let the market rip when we like the look of the outcome. And when powerful people don't like market outcomes, they, they beg government for regulation, whether it's subsidies for the gas industry or, or wage suppression for fruit pickers. It's, there's no philosophy at play there. It's just, it's just people looking after their interests, which ironically is exactly what economics says they'll do. Richard Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. That was a great discussion on the, the current state of and trajectory of uh, government regulation of work and employment. I really appreciate you uh, sitting down with me today. Great. Thank you for having me on. Thanks, mate.